We are starting a new book. So let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. How about that? We'll be in the Gospel of Mark. It's pretty cool. And we're going to dive in here and see what the Lord has for us today as we spend a couple of minutes getting into God's Word. And as you turn there, we're going to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to just come and just let Him teach us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please move everybody out of the way, open our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, and our feet to walk in what you're going to tell us. Please speak to us through your word as you always do. You are so faithful. You've never let us down. We thank you for this time of study. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you should be in Mark by now. We're going to be doing a few things. It should be a very interesting, uh, let me put start there. There you go. Um, <laughs> it should be a good study uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Now, our Bible, and, 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 and if I get too loud, you guys, you got to turn me down in the back, especially if I get too excited. <clears throat> anyway, our Bible, the 66 books, um, Genesis through Revelation, is a Holy Spirit, divine, skillfully designed book inherently okay in its original transmission from God to the author it's inherently infallible God specially and specifically chose and prepared each author 40 of them over 1500 years to write the Bible God actually breathed his words to the authors. So what they wrote was God's actual words. And these words were and still are inspired. God's word, okay, his words were and are today unerring, error-free, unfailing, faultless, flawless, impeachable, perfect, and true. No other document or written work throughout history has ever been more scrutinized, studied, attacked, or debated over in the last 3,400 years as our Bible. No other document. Now, with all of this scrutiny, our Bibles remain authentic, accurate, and reliable. These God-breathed words, the Bible, have proven conclusively that what we are holding on our laps today is, without a doubt, God's holy word given to us at his sister says in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture, you got it in your laps, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, when we look at our Bibles this week, I pray with all my heart that we view the Bible for what it is, and that we respect the Bible 
for what it is and the value that it has in our Christian life. Amen? That's awesome. That's God's word. And he has not left us without it. So, we're in Mark, right? Let's look at chapter 1. Let's get a little bit of background, guys, on, um, on Mark, the author. Uh, he is uh, young John Mark. Mark is his uh, surname. Um, he was not, believe it or not, one of the 12 apostles that were chosen. Did you know that? He's not one of the 12 apostles. Some didn't know that, but uh, I guess we know it now, right? He wrote this document. Um, some uh, history has him writing it in Rome as he sat with Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, getting his events correct, and perhaps he interviewed some others along the way. Uh, Mark was very familiar as a young boy with Jesus, um, and uh, he was actually, according to what I, I believe anyway, he was the young boy that was in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in uh, Mark chapter 14, and uh, that he actually was being chased by uh, the soldiers and those arresting officials when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe that was Mark. Um, it doesn't say his name, but uh, that's the only mention of that story, and it talks about uh, that young boy. I think it was him. So as a young boy, he did follow uh, Jesus and to uh, see what's going on. So the date of the writing was somewhere around, just to give you a little historical timing, somewhere around A.D. 63. Uh, you weren't there, but I know that no. Right? But A.D. 63, okay, so that was in the first century. Um, so think about that now. That's about 30 years, 30 years, just 30 years after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. If that date is correct, yeah, give or take a couple of years. But just think about the just 30 years. That's pretty awesome to have such an accurate uh, document written uh, about that. Um, um, making, um, now what that does when you look at the time, it makes a lot of the witnesses when he wrote this still alive, uh, which also adds another area of credibility to what we're about to be studying. Who was he writing to? This somebody specific. It was the Romans. He was writing to the Gentile Romans at the time, so you'll have that flavor in there of who he's directing this to, even though the word of God is, is for all of us. Um, Mark, as you remember, became a missionary with Paul and Barnabas. You remember that? We've been, we learned that in our Wednesday uh, Bible class in Acts where Pastor Josh is teaching us, and, uh, which is an awesome class if you want to learn. We're almost done with there with Acts. And then, um, but he, we learned a lot about that, and here we are. We got uh, Mark was a missionary with Paul and with Barnabas. Uh, and did you know that he was also Barnabas' cousin? Yeah, you find that in Colossians 4.10. So, um, that's a little of, um, of who God specifically and specially chose to write this gospel. Uh, and this gospel is one of the four gospels, of course, we have in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them has its own specific characteristic which points to Christ. Matthew's characteristic speaks of Christ as king. I love that one. Mark's characteristic speaks of, of Jesus as the servant, right? He is the suffering servant. Luke, uh, that characteristic points to Jesus Christ as the son of man. And John's characteristic, of course, 
uh, speaks of Jesus as the son of God. So we got through the introduction of Mark. Gives us a little background there. Isn't that interesting about him? I don't know if you knew those things, but I hope you learned something about that. <laughs> All right, so let's look at verse 1. Uh, we're going to read down a few verses here, and let's see what God has for us here. It says um, in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's stop there for a minute. When you see the beginning, when it says the beginning, what does that remind you of? Doesn't it remind you of Genesis 1-1? Right? Think about this. It says here in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. He created everything. John 1-1, what does that say? In the beginning, God, right? But it's in the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the same uh, a concept, right? Jesus is God, God creating everything. And then we come here, and we see the beginning. So it sort of uh, um, tilts our mind to that, and it just lets us know it's all about God. It's all about God and what he's doing. And he's the one that, that has begun the gospel. I love it. I love it. So everything had its beginning in God and not in man. Very good point. But in the it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. So now, the gospel is the focus here. And it had its beginning spoken of, right, in the Old Testament writings of the prophets. Very interesting. Which Mark quotes two of them, which we're going to read in Malachi 3, 1 and Isaiah 4, 40, verse 3. And it's these, these Old Testament scriptures we're going to read, references and points to the gospel, and it's going to tell us a little bit about a messenger, John the Baptist. So, as it was written in the prophets, verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, how beautiful it is to see that the writings of the prophets that we have in, in, in here in the Gospels, and we see the prophets here, that um, it, it, what it does is we, we see that the truths of the Gospel are in the Old Testament. The, the very gospel is in the Old Testament. The very things we see in these gospels about Jesus Christ's gospel was in or is in the Old Testament. It's there. Now, do you notice or do you remember when Simeon and Anna were in the temple and they brought Jesus in and what was said there? Well, they were able to see the, the baby Jesus put that together with the word of God that they knew from the Old Testament, and it just fit so perfectly. So when Simeon saw baby Jesus, and when Anna saw baby Jesus, there was no doubt. They were able to put this together. So here we have the Old Testament has the gospel concealed there. But guess what the New Testament does? The New Testament has the Old Testament truths that are concealed there, revealed and when we go through the gospel that's what we're going to see and when you read your old testament you're going to see that too you'll see a lot of things that are very familiar to you that hey i know what this is hey this references this and this references to that and i love that okay now 
verse 2 and 3 we just read, okay? Verse 2 and 3, I titled that The Promise. Very important here, the promise, right? Behold, I send my messenger before your face um, who will prepare your way before you and the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, right? So here we have a promise of God. And by the way, think about John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness. Do you know what that word crying means? It is the same thought of a person, a person that's accosting someone to get their attention. I love that word, accosting. Right? Accosting them or trying to get their attention for something. That's what John, he wasn't just out there, you know, oh, whatever. He will, he'll get your attention. You walk down there in the Jordan River, John the Baptist is out there. He sees you, he's going to get your attention. So that's how he was. I thought that was very interesting. Okay, so now that was verse 2 and 3. We call that the promise. But verse 4 through 8, I call the promise fulfilled. I call that the promise fulfilled. So uh, let's do that and read verses 4 through 8. But I want you to keep something in mind. And this has to do with a very beautiful point. Mike, uh, Malachi uh, 3.1 was spoken about something to happen 400 years before it happened. Isaiah 40 speaks about that we just read almost 800 years before it happened. Very interesting. Only God can do that. But this is very interesting about that. We're going to talk about in a minute. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. Now, let's read uh, verses 4 through 8 together. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the promise fulfilled. We saw the promise given in verse 2 through 3, 800 years, 400 years before it even happened. And then all of a sudden, the promise is fulfilled. Okay? Now, think about this. Do you know that John the Baptist, the promise fulfilled, his mom was barren? mom's name was Elizabeth. Who was his dad's name? Zacharias, right? Remember? You remember what happened in, in, in there, right? Barren, old folks. That's an impossibility. You're not going to have any kids. You got 800 years before this promise is even fulfilled. That's a, it's not going to happen. And do you know the condition of Israel back then, the religious establishment? Rebellious. It, it's, this is all not going to work. All of those obstacles stood in the way of the promise being fulfilled. But did it stop God? Not one bit. So, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Think about that. Long period of time didn't stop it. A rebellious nation didn't stop God's promise. The impossibility that I see before me of having a baby, that's not going to happen. 
But that didn't stop it. So my question to you is, what has God promised you lately? What obstacles are in the way of impossibility of the promise that God has given you that won't happen? That guess what? If God promised it, it's going to happen. God's promises are always relied upon and they are always good because he makes good on all his promises, right? He's not like man. Now, let's look at a couple of things that we saw uh, through verse 4 through 8. We read through that really quick. Um, <clears throat> notice verse 4 says, uh, John was preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the remission of sins. So when I saw that, I says, wait a minute, is he changing the law? What's, what's he doing? Well, no, John the Baptist wasn't changing the law, right? The people still had to follow the sacrificial law to have their forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17.11, right? The end of that verse says, For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. I don't care how anybody tells you that the Jews don't have a temple, the Jews don't have sacrifices, therefore, there is no therefore. Unless there's a shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, right? So John the Baptist was not trying to change all of that. What John wanted, all those people were coming to him. What John wanted the people to see, he wanted them to see their sin for what it really was. And number two, he wanted them to be repented about it, have a heart of repentance. That's what he wanted because he knew, and his job was, he knew that if the people saw their sin for what it was and they had a heart for repentance, then he knew that when the, Jesus completed his redemption for mankind, when the Messiah came, guess what? The people would then have someone to turn to, trust in, and be saved. He was preparing the way for Jesus Christ. So that's what he was doing. So this was the message of John. But I want you to think about the condition of the people of Israel, the people uh, of that land that John was trying to minister to. What was going on? Turn with me to Isaiah 29, 13. Because I want you to see how Isaiah 29 and verse 13, I want you to see how this particular scripture applies to his day Okay, how it applies to his day and how the people were living back then. Okay, let me get to it. I'm using my left hand, so I'm a little slow because I'm a righty. Okay, Isaiah 29, look at verse 13. This is what the condition of the people that he had to deal with. This is what their attitudes were. It says in verse 13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me or toward me is taught by the commandment of men. That's what he had to deal with. That was what was in the people. He's trying to get them to turn, trying to get them to turn. So we see this condition as we go through the Gospels too. You're going to see this in the religious people that we're going to meet as we go through the Gospel. The same thing. They dress good. They look good. They come to church or to the synagogue. They come to the temple or whatever. But their hearts are far from the Lord. Now, turn with me also to 1 Samuel. 
Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I want you to keep this in mind. What is it that God is actually requiring from man? And we're going to see a quick little Bible class given to King Saul from his instructor, the prophet Samuel, in verse 21 of 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 21 of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's look at this instruction. What is it that God requires? What is God looking for? Why is John the Baptist out there doing this? What is he, what's going on? Uh, chapter 1 Samuel 15, verse 21. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. That was the king's response to Samuel. So Samuel said, has the Lord, okay, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So we have this quick little lesson from these two particular, from Isaiah and 1 Samuel, of what is the condition of the people, and also we can see what God requires. Now, what is the lesson that we learn from this for us 21st century Christians? What lesson do we learn from this? Well, this is the lesson I got. Don't make your Christian relationship with God a formal doings of things. Don't make your Christian relationship with God a check-the-box religion. Don't make your Christian relationship with God a one-day-a-week Christianity. But get along with the Lord. Spend time with him and do exactly what it is he's telling you to do because he loves you very, very much. Okay, so in verse 6, look at verse 6 again back in uh, Mark chapter 1, we're at verse 6. Now, John was clothed, okay, all right, so now he's there, everyone's getting baptized and confessing their sins. Uh, we know the condition of the people, we know what God requires. And in verse 6 it says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. Now, um, some people debate whether it's really locusts or not, but um, I tell you, I was uh, on, uh, I was uh, deployed in an area in the Middle East, and on this particular um, outpost we were at, um, we did our patrols and everything. One day, we got overrun. Yeah, we got overrun. You could sit there and, or whatever, and you see this dark cloud coming over in the desert. And all of a sudden, the whole camp was full of locusts. I mean, and they were like this big, all over, everywhere. And do you know what? Being out there and on the hot desert hungry sometimes, yep, I'm a-looking. Nah, I better get my MRE, but I'm a-looking. They look kind of tasty. But uh, I, this is, I, I didn't need any. 
So, no, I didn't need any, so I didn't have the pleasure of doing that. But anyway, um, I believe this was really locust. I believe that John the Baptist uh, ate some uh, a good protein there, and that, that, was, that was allowable. It wasn't unclean or anything like that. However, notice something. It's not how you look, and it's not what you eat. It's what message you have. It doesn't matter how you look or what you eat, or even if you got a leather belt around you and you're wearing camel's hair. It doesn't matter. It's the message that counts. Notice also John mentions um, here in verse 7 Jesus' might and his power. Look at verse 7. He says, and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I. So however mighty he was, he's talking about Jesus being mightier than he was. Also, notice in verse 7 that he mentions Jesus' position is over him in verse 7, right? He says, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. He's the king of all kings. So he's above him. Notice what John is saying here. And then also, also, do you know that in John has this same event, but with a different side to it. In John 1.15, he talks about um, Jesus' deity. Uh, he says that John bore witness of him, crying out, saying, um, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. That's in John 1.15. So look at all of those little tick marks that he's talking about Jesus, right? Now, notice something here. Um, who was older Jesus or John? John was older. Yeah. Yeah, Elizabeth was cousin to Mary. But anyway, you have this, and he says, no, he was before me. What is John saying about the Messiah? That he is the eternal God. I love it. I love it. I love it. John also mentions, did you catch that, guys? John mentions the soon coming baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, we heard about that in Joel chapter 2, 28, and we've seen it in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. So we've seen that, right? So what do we learn from all of this right here in these just these few verses and what is said um, here? What are we learning about this? We learn that it's all about Jesus. <laughs> it's all about, no, it's about me. This, this whole thing today is all about me. I woke up in the morning today, and it's me, me, me. I didn't get the phone call, didn't get the Facebook, didn't get the email. It's all about me. That's why I'm down in the dumps. That's what, no, it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. Just get everything pointed to him. Everything pointed to him. Yes, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. I love it. I love it. Now, let's look at a few things that we just learned here and apply it to our lives. What does Mark actually want these Romans Gentiles to see? What does God want us to see in just these few verses for us? Well, you and I need, just like they, John wanted them to see, you and I need to see our sin for what it really is and not cover it up. God is right God is just, and God is holy, and we are not. The only thing good in us is what Jesus Christ 
in us is living through us. In and of ourselves, we are not. We need to repent, just like they did, if you haven't already. You need to repent. And I say that to everyone watching as well. If you've not repented of your sins to Jesus Christ, today is the day of your salvation. Don't harden your heart. Make that decision now, because you may not have the next minute of your life. We need also, just like they did, and this is what, what Mark is portraying and the people that in the first century are reading, we need to stop this disconnected, compartmentalized Christian relationship and start spending time with Jesus. <laughs> we also need to surrender to the Lord and have Jesus fill us with his Holy Spirit so that we can be supernaturally empowered to have the relationship that matches the word of God in John 10.10. 10. What does it say? Jesus said, I have come that they may have what? Life. And have it more abundantly. So are you having your Christian life more abundantly? And if you're not, something's wrong. And if you're not, something needs to be fixed, and God can do it. So that ends those verses. Now, let's look at verse 9, and we're going to read to verse 11. Okay? Now, what we're going to see when we read these verses is very beautiful. <clears throat> we're going to see for the first time Jesus as told to the first century Christians by Mark and we're also going to see the Trinity here, we're going to see Jesus show up on the scene. Now, I do want you to keep in mind the condition of the Christians back then. As the Christians gathered back in that time and that era, if you were a Jewish uh, Christian, that meant persecution from the Jews. Just ask Paul. <laughs> that meant persecution from the Roman government. If you were a Gentile Christian, that also means persecution from the Roman government or other false religions. As uh, Pastor Josh was teaching in, in Acts 19, we saw Paul run into some of those guys, okay, and getting in trouble uh, there by false religions. Um, so the first persecution that the Christian uh, had that was organized by the Roman government took place under guess who? Emperor Nero. This is the guys in charge here. In AD 64, that's when it happened. There was a great fire in Rome. Tacitus, who was a historian for Rome, he was a governor for Rome, um, he said that uh, he blamed it on the Christians. Now, whether or not that's the truth or not, that the great fire in AD 64 was blamed on the Christians or not, neither here nor there. Either It doesn't matter because guess what? Christians were being persecuted back then. So as we read this gospel, as we look into these few verses here, I want you to try to sympathize and I want you to try to empathize with the Christians back in the first century. Because when they gathered together, there weren't any churches, buildings like this. When they gathered together, they gathered together under the threat of losing their life and everything they owned. When, when Mark went and, and, and had this gospel read in different places and people were reading the, the, the scriptures that they had, the different ones, guess what? They were huddled in places that they could lose their lives just for gathering as a Christian. These are the people 
that he was writing to. And I think we need to empathize and sympathize with them living in our beautiful country that we don't have to worry about that at this time. So let's look at verse 9 through 11. And it says, it came to pass in those days. And I want you to keep your eyes open for the Trinity. Where do you see the Trinity uh, represented here? It came to pass in those days that Jesus, what a beautiful name, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Nazareth is northwest of the Jordan, and they have the different roads that they travel, and uh, it's about 60-mile journey, so walking is good for you. He did, the Lord did a lot of walking. So here he shows up, and it says uh, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heaven parting or torn apart and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, here Jesus shows up to Mark to be baptized. But unlike everybody else, not for his sins. You would think that, right? Yeah, he's coming just like everybody else. He didn't come to have his, he, he, he has never sinned. He is not there to confess his sins, for he has none. Um, it's not for repentance, because he is God. There's nothing to repent of. He never did anything wrong. That's our Savior. Jesus is God in the flesh, right? So then I, what do you think, what are you getting baptized for, right? Well, do you know I remember in Matthew, when I was looking there, and I know you do too, the other event, in Matthew when he went, and, and, and John saw him, and then John says, no, it should be you baptizing me. You know, what are you doing? Pretty much, that's my paraphrase there, right? But, but in, in the 15th verse of Matthew 3, John said this. He says to Jesus, when he tried to stop him from him water baptizing Jesus, Jesus said, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us, them two, to fulfill all righteousness. And, and then I started thinking again, well, okay, well, what are you doing there, Jesus? Fulfilling what righteousness? What, does this, what are you doing, right? I thought about something else two chapters after that in Matthew 5. It says in verse 17, Jesus said this. 5.17 of Matthew, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, right, but to what? Fulfill. So I'm saying, okay, Pastor Chuck, what is he coming to fulfill? This seems to make sense. And it seems like two and two is beginning to be put together, in my brain anyway, right? Two and two is beginning to be put together. So where's the two and two here? So it led me to Leviticus. Now follow me to Leviticus. Go to chapter eight, guys. Come on, go to Leviticus. You gotta follow me here. Because I'm thinking, are you here? He's getting water baptized. How does this mean that water baptism was not something unusual for the Jews? I mean, they, they did these type of things when people were converted to Judaism. So, it, you know, it wasn't like, you know, John is doing something that they've never, ever done before. And I started thinking, it says, okay, Jesus is doing something that, that, that is pointing 
or revealing something in the Old Testament. And I said, okay, what was it? So I went to Leviticus 8. And look with me in verse 6. And it might be just me, but look at verse 6. And it says, Then Moses brought Aaron. Who's Aaron? Aaron is the high priest, right? Who is our high priest? Jesus, right? Okay, got it. Type of Jesus. Got it, got it. Okay, so I was getting a little excited. It says, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons, right? And what did he do? He washed them with what? With water. Huh. I says, okay. And he put the girl up, and then they went to do their ministry. So I said, oh, these guys in Leviticus, the priests, had to wash before they got started to do their ministry. This is Jesus starting his ministry, and he's coming. Huh, this kind of makes sense. Then I went to Leviticus 16. Go to Leviticus 16 with me. And I found something really interesting. Well, it's all really interesting, but... Uh, Leviticus 16, and my brain is starting to put two and two together because my question was, why was Jesus there getting water baptized to fulfill what righteousness? So I look at chapter 16, and look with me in, in verse 24. It says, and he shall wash, speaking of uh, verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments, uh, verse 23, and uh, which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there, verse 24, um, and he shall wash his body with water in the holy place, put on his garments, notice these two words, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people the fat of the sin offering, and he goes on and on. So what was happening here? Well, he all, here's Aaron, the high priest. He goes in, he's going to perform, and this has to do with the atonement, this chapter, the atonement. So I'm looking there, and I'm going, well, what does he do? He, he goes in. Now, of course, he had to provide a sacrifice for himself because he, he's a sinner. Jesus didn't have to do that, but he went through the washing process, then he put his garments on, and then started the ministry. And this first chapter 17 is speaking of the atonement. So I thought about Jesus. I said, wait a minute, what did Jesus do? Well, if you read there, it's, it's, it's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came out of the water. And remember, Leviticus says that he came out, right? So I'm looking and go, well, Jesus went in. He did exactly what he did. He came out, and three years later, he provided the atonement for all of mankind and started his ministry. And I said, well, okay, that makes sense, Lord. Thank you very much. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. So, so it shows us that God's word from Old Testament to New Testament, concealed to, re to reveal, is, is just so beautiful. And how God is so uh, um, keeping things in order the way things should be. I just love God's word and how he showed that. That is awesome. Now. Looking at water baptism, guys, our Christian water baptism, since we're in water baptism, got to make this point. Our Christian water baptism is not for salvation or to be saved. Water baptism cannot ever save you, but we do it obediently because we are saved. We are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to Matthew 28, verse 19, as we make disciples, right? Now, notice in, in, uh, in here, um, there's something very interesting about what happens in the event as Jesus is in the water. Uh, Luke chapter 3, 21 tells us, you could turn there, Luke uh, chapter 3 and verse 21 gives us another uh, um, um, view of what happened. And I want you to notice something here. In Luke chapter 3, 21, about this incident of Jesus um, being in the water, being water baptized, and the different thing, events that happened. Look at Luke 3, 21. It says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was always God. He was never at any time not God. The Holy Spirit came upon him. But I want you to notice something. The Holy Spirit came upon him not because he was baptized in water. Right? Follow me. You are in Luke 3. Right? Go to Luke chapter 11. He was not, the Holy Spirit came upon him, not because of water baptism, but it happened while he prayed. Now what do we do with that? Verse 8. Keep your finger there in Luke 11. Go back to Mark. I'm sorry. But in verse 8, remember verse 8? Got to read that to you. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. How is he going to do that? How are we going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit? Luke 11, you're there. Verse 13 says this. If you then being evil, now when you look in the mirror, Jesus says, you being evil, take that pill and swallow it. <laughs> Don't try to change it. If you then be evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The power that we see being in being baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts, Pastor, chapter 2, verse 4, what were they doing? They were praying. The Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus, what was he doing? As he prayed, right? Now, here in receiving the Holy Spirit, what do we do? We ask, right? So now, what does that mean to us? Do you see the common denominator here? Do you see the similarity? Come on, I don't have to say it. If you look at all of these three areas, the, in Luke 3, Luke 11, and in Acts, and you look at how everyone got this, the, it was all done. The Holy Spirit baptized and filled them and came upon them. They were praying. So, 
What about our prayers to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? <laughs> so Mark's gospel, um, we're going to end here because my time is done. Um, but we're going to end here. There's so much more, so much more beauty to get out of this. However, Mark's gospel begins, just the, the opening here, the beginning of a Holy Spirit amazing journey to see what Jesus Christ does. And it's all about our Lord anyway. So let's go and ask God's blessing on what we heard and get ready for our last song and just let God's word work in our hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Without it, we would have absolutely nothing to live by and go by. Thank you for what we are being revealed from the New Testament of the things that are concealed in the old, the people that you've chosen to be your spokesman, to prepare the way. Help us to do the same. Help us to be the voices crying in the wilderness, lifting you up, asking you to fill us with the Holy Spirit as we just simply move forward doing what it is you call us to do. So thank you so very much in Jesus' name. Amen.